Hi everybody, welcome back to the Curiosity Chronicles. Thank you for tuning in and listening. I'm really excited for what I got for you today. It was a lot of fun to put together. I'm really excited for you to listen to it. If you remember, we are working through a series on 1968. Last time I talked about the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. And today is a continuation of that series with part two, which is the next major event that happened in the year 1968, in my opinion at least. So this is the Curiosity Chronicles. My name is Brett Bilesma. I am the host of the podcast, and this is what I was curious about this month. So what is part two of the 1968 series? Well, we are actually going to be talking about the downfall of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president of the United States. But before we can get into that, we really have to talk about his life, his childhood, his political career before he became president. And so this podcast really is going to be more about the life of Lyndon Baines Johnson and how that then affected his decisions and what happened in 1968, which was a really catastrophic downfall. He was the most popular president in quite some time and had won a landslide victory in 1964. And by the time he was done with his four-year term, he was pretty much universally reviled throughout the United States. It was pretty catastrophic, politically speaking and personally speaking. He took it really hard. But in order to understand why that happened, I want to talk about his life, basically. He's a really interesting guy, and it was really fun to dig into it and see how he was formed, so to speak, as an adolescent and as an early politician. So that's what we're going to be talking about for the most part today. So kind of a misnomer uh, on the on the beginning here. It's not really about just what happened in 1968, but the major events that we want to eventually get to occurred in 1968. So where did Lyndon Baines Johnson come from? Lyndon was born on August 27, 1908 in Central Texas, and he was the oldest of five children that were born to Samuel and Rebecca Johnson. Now, his father, Samuel, was not who you would consider to be a great man. He is remembered in the history books for one reason, and that reason is that his firstborn became the president of the United States. Sounds harsh, but it's, it's, it's accurate. He was a local politician and didn't really do much for the politics in Central Texas, and he was a cotton speculator. Now, I do not actually know what cotton speculation is. It's a mystery to me. I didn't look it up because I didn't feel like it was important for this podcast, but I do know from what I read that Samuel Johnson was a terrible cotton speculator. He would make money, and then immediately on his next deal, he would lose all of it. Lyndon Johnson grew up basically in what can be called a state of poverty because his father was just a terrible cotton speculator. Now on the flip side, Lyndon's mother, Rebecca, came from a fairly well-to-do family and she had a father who she absolutely adored. Her father was a fairly successful man. He had good social standing. He was pretty wealthy and he was able to provide a wonderful childhood for his daughter, Rebecca. Unfortunately, he passed away when Rebecca was at a fairly young age, and whether or not it was because he passed away during Rebecca's formative years or it was because he was actually a very great man, 
Rebecca had this view of men that was a, it was a very high standard. And the view of her father as this great man colored her view of all men going forward. And when she met Sam, he did not seem to live up to this view that Rebecca had of what a man should be. And I don't actually know why they got married. It confused me doing the research because right from the get-go, it just seemed like she viewed her husband as a total loser. And maybe she married him because, you know, she just needed a husband and she needed the security of a husband who had a job, even if he was terrible at it. I don't know. But regardless, she viewed her husband as a complete loser. And worse than that, she also seemed to blame him for not being able to give her the nice things that her father was able to give her. She did not have the social standing that she did when she was younger, so she missed out on all of that uh, social life, and she missed out on all the good things that money can provide for someone. And that had a strain on her marriage, of course, because in her mind, it was her husband's fault for not providing for her. But they stayed together, and they had five kids. And when Lyndon Johnson was born, his mother, Rebecca, saw him as a way for her to live vicariously and, and live out her hopes and dreams through her son. She very badly wanted Lyndon to be successful and to reach a status of high society because in her mind, if her son was successful, then she was successful. People would view her as the mother of a great man and she would be able to once again regain all of the things that she had as a child. So she took all of her hopes and dreams and she placed them on Lyndon's shoulders. And this is a young kid. I mean, he's nine, 10 years old or younger even when this started. He's not emotionally equipped to handle all of the hopes and dreams of his mother. I mean, who could? And so it was a heavy emotional baggage for Lyndon Johnson. And it had a pretty profound effect going forward. Now, the worst thing about the relationship between Lyndon and Rebecca is that if he wasn't being emotionally abused, then at the very least, his mother was being fairly emotionally damaging during his childhood because she would smother him with love and affection, which seems like a really good thing, a mother that dotes on her son. But she used her love and affection as more like a weapon because she had this ideal of what her son should be doing and what he should act like. She viewed her son as someone who needed to partake of high-minded activities, something that was more acceptable to high society, and all of his activities should be geared towards his future success. So she wanted him to become educated. She liked him to learn poetry and recite it, you know, things like that. And if he did these things and he did them well enough for her approval, she would give him all her love and affection. And because he was number one in the household, he was basically the replacement for the husband that she despised. She had a lot of love to give. However, this love was used, like I said, as a weapon. If Lyndon displeased his mother, and it seems like it didn't take much to displease her, she would take that love and affection away. If he was doing things that she considered low class or low society, not geared towards the future success of her son, she would basically pretend like he didn't exist. She wouldn't acknowledge his presence in the house, even at the dinner table. 
she would just pretend that he wasn't even there. And she would instead intently focus her love and affection on one of the other members of the house, one of the other kids. But that almost seems worse to me because A, the other kid had to know that they were only getting their mother's attention because she was displeased with Lyndon. And also she was only, it seemed, giving attention to the other kids so that Lyndon could see what he was missing out on and reform his ways, so to speak. It was really quite vindictive in my mind, and it had to have had an effect on Lyndon as he grew up and in the formative years of his life. And I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist by any means, but as you look into the adult life of Lyndon Johnson, you'll notice that he yearned for two things, power and control. He would do whatever it took to gain and consolidate power so that he was the one making the decisions, and he always wanted to be in control of every situation. Even when he was presiding over the Vietnam War, he needed to make all the decisions. And I believe that has to do a lot with how he was raised because he probably felt so out of control as a child. He never could please his mother and he could never know if he was going to wake up in the morning and be the recipient of his mother's love and affection or if she was going to spend the next few days pretending that he did not exist. Anyway, I'm digressing here a little bit, but I do want to get back to his childhood because Lyndon had a very difficult relationship with both his parents, as of course you can see. But the most difficult thing that I think I can imagine is that he wanted to keep his mother happy and he wanted to partake of all the activities that she had set out for him and be successful so that she was happy with him. But he also wanted to have a relationship and please his father. And unfortunately, the activities that his father and his mother thought were good for him were diametrically opposed to each other. Now remember, Rebecca wanted him to think high-minded things, be successful, learn and recite poetry, and his father Sam viewed those types of things that Rebecca enjoyed as sissy stuff. He was afraid that if Lyndon kept going in that direction that he would grow up to be a little bit of a girly boy. You have to remember that this is 1920s Texas. He wanted his son to be a man's man, and... The problem with that is that Lyndon somewhat agreed. He wanted to do the activities that his father enjoyed. He enjoyed hanging out with his father and doing the manly stuff. But Rebecca hated those types of things because her husband was such a loser that she thought that anything that he enjoyed would cause Lyndon to become a loser as well. So if Lyndon enjoyed taking part in those activities with his father then he was obviously destined to grow up to be a loser. And this could not be the case for her son in the future. He needed to be a success. He needed to be a success because his mother needed to retain the glory that she lost. So going forward in Lyndon's life, it did not matter what he chose to do. No matter what, he was going to be disappointing one of his parents. Every choice he made one of his parents would be displeased with him. I can't imagine being stuck in the middle like that. That is not a way to raise a son. It's amazing to me that even after this childhood where he had no right answer, he somehow managed to become a fairly well-adjusted, 
And I say fairly. He did have some quirks as an adult. We'll get to that. But he was a fairly well-adjusted and very, very successful and immensely powerful adult man. And how he managed to pull it off is a testament to what kind of person he was. LBJ started his escape from his parents, especially his mother, in 1924. That was the year that he graduated from high school. And he had made the decision to not go to college. And this immensely displeased his mother. She viewed this as a complete throwing away of his life. No way that he was going to be successful if he did not go to college. And so she shunned him, as she did, and treated him like he was a non-entity, like he was a rock or a statue in the yard. And so Lyndon kind of just said, all right, screw this, and he took off. He had some friends going to California to find work, and originally Lyndon had decided not to go with them. But after his mother was treating him like this, he basically jumped in the car with a shirt on his back and took off. And for three years, he worked odd jobs in California. And it was the first time that he was really able to gain some independence and get away from his mother. And good for him, honestly. If I was him, I'd have done the same thing. Get out of that toxic situation, go live your life, and try to be successful on your own. Lyndon Johnson was not someone who could just do odd jobs for the rest of his life, however. He was a driven person, and he needed to make something of himself. So after those three years, he came back to Texas, and he enrolled in Southwest Texas State Teachers College, which is now known as Texas State University. And it was at that point in his life that you really started to see the drive and ambition that was a cornerstone of his life for the rest of his life. He would focus on something with a single-minded intensity that I've hardly ever seen in any other person that I've ever studied or seen in my real life. And it led to him being extraordinarily successful. He was actually so successful in student teaching that he was given an administration job at a school in Cotula, Texas. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Before he had even graduated. Could you imagine that these days? He hadn't even graduated. And they were like, here, run this school. The most ridiculous thing about that whole story, I think, is that he actually was really successful as an administrator. He was in a area of Texas that was extremely poor. His students were mostly Mexican-American, and they did not have a lot of anything, to be honest. They were destitute, almost. And the worst thing was that it seemed like the people that had run the school beforehand didn't really care. They just did what was required of them by the state. And then Lyndon came in, and he started with almost what seemed like reckless abandon, just instituting these extracurricular activities, sports and clubs and different types of after-school activities that these kids had never had a chance to partake in. And he did it in a way that was frenetic. It was frantic, it seemed like to me. But that was the type of person that LBJ was. I mean, he put all of his time, energy, and mental faculties into one project, and he was determined to be successful at whatever project he had set his mind to. And he was. For the years that he was at the school, which was 1928 and 29, they had a ton of extracurricular activities, maybe even too much, you could say, but it was something that these kids were finally able to experience that they never had a chance to. They got to experience the extracurricular activities that up until that time they can't afford because Lyndon Johnson just made it happen through basically sheer willpower. And then as soon as he left, it ended. 
and it's pretty sad but that's just shows you the resolve that he has if he wanted to accomplish something he would and he did throughout the rest of his life and this time in Cotula, Texas had a significant impact on the rest of his life. He had maintained ties with the Mexican-American community, and that actually helped the 1960 ticket, Kennedy Johnson, win the election. They got quite a bit of help from the Mexican-American vote. And then later on, he used this as inspiration in some of his civil rights legislation, and he actually referenced this time as an administrator in a 1965 speech before Congress while he was president. So it clearly had an impact. Johnson's time in college had another serious impact on his life as well because he was an assistant to the president of the college. And so he put forth all his effort, once again, of course, to be the absolute best assistant that he could. And part of it was he wanted to become indispensable. And he did. The president of the college relied on him heavily to sort through his mail, to answer appointments, to schedule appointments. And in doing so, Lyndon Johnson was able to meet quite a few influential people. And he became well-known in certain circles of successful men. And so he graduated in 1930 from the college. And he didn't actually go into teaching. Because what happened was a man named Richard Kleberg, I believe his name is, asked him to join his congressional campaign in 1930. He was a Democrat who actually won the election and was elected to the House of Representatives. And because Lyndon Johnson was so willing to do whatever it took to do his job, so to speak, with his single-minded devotion to whatever his job was at that time, Kleberg wanted him on his team, and he took him to Washington as a legislative assistant. And Lyndon would spend basically the next 38 years of his life in Washington, D.C. in some capacity. I thought it was interesting when he was the legislative assistant to Kleberg because it kind of mirrored when he was assistant to the president of the college that he attended because Kleberg really didn't have a lot of interest in doing the day-to-day -day work of a congressman. And he delegated a lot of his duties to Lyndon Johnson which allowed Johnson to become very familiar not only with the parliamentary practice of Congress, but also he got to meet all the influential people that he needed to while carrying out the duties of the congressman. He was kind of like a pseudo-congressman, so to speak. He didn't have the official title, but he was able to speak for the congressman in a lot of different ways. And so he met important people, and because of his ambition and his drive, he cultivated those people, whether they were lobbyists, other congressmen, or other legislative aides. In the back of his mind, I believe, he always did his job with the motive of how can I make this work for me going forward. Remember what I said earlier in the podcast. Lyndon Johnson was obsessed with gaining power. He always focused his attention on doing the job that he needed to and doing it to the best of his ability with single-minded devotion, but I believe that the reason he focused so intently is so that he could move up in the world, get promoted, and gain more power. And it was really working for him. As the legislative assistant, he was gaining a lot of those relationships that would definitely lead to more power in the future. One of the ways that this power first exhibited itself was when Lyndon was elected to be the Speaker of the Little Congress. 
Now, a little Congress is something I had never heard about until I started doing the research on this. And up until Lyndon was elected speaker, it was mostly just a group of secretaries and clerks to the lawmakers who would meet and they'd kind of model themselves after the House of Representatives. And it gave the staffers more insight into parliamentary procedure. Lyndon was elected to the Speaker of the Little Congress in 1933. He was 24 years old. He was actually the youngest person that was ever elected to be the Speaker of Little Congress. And that's a theme that you'll notice going forward. It seems like in everything that Lyndon did, he was always the youngest or the most junior person to do it. And it gives you, once again, not to beat a dead horse, but it shows you that if he wanted to succeed at something, he was going to succeed at something. And when he became the Speaker of Little Congress, he made it into a more highly political organization. He would have weekly debates on what was pending legislation in the real House of Representatives, and it really helped him to hone his skill and his tactics for his future political career. And when I speak about tactics, Lyndon Johnson, already at 24, was a political genius. In fact, the way that he actually got elected to be the speaker is that he went around and talked to a bunch of people who were qualified to be in Little Congress, but had never really been invited or had any reason to join. He actually got a bunch of the congressional elevator operators to join the Little Congress, and then they voted him into the speaker office. The guy was a genius when it came to getting what he wanted with political means. Lyndon used his position as Speaker of Little Congress to gain acquaintances and cultivate relationships with actual members of Congress, and he did this by inviting them to speak to the Little Congress. And he was amazing at cultivating these relationships by being a judge of character. He knew what made each person tick. He knew what he needed to do and how he needed to act and what he needed to give the other person so that they would give him in return what he wanted. And again, what he wanted was power and control. Lyndon Johnson saw the opportunity to further his political career in 1935 when the directorship of the Texas chapter of the National Youth Administration opened up. The National Youth Administration, or the NYA, was one of the agencies that was created under the New Deal legislation from Franklin Roosevelt. You have to remember 1935, this was dead in the middle of the Great Depression and many people were out of work. And the New Deal, among other things, was designed to create work for the unemployed Americans by creating these organizations. And the National Youth Administration was specifically intended to provide work for Americans who were 16 to 25. And when the Texas directorship opened up, Lyndon wanted that job, and he made it very clear why he should have it. And keep in mind, he knew a lot of powerful people because of his jobs, not only as the legislative assistant to Kleberg, but also because of his activities with Little Congress. And he used them, and he got that job. Not to be unexpected. Like we have said multiple times, Lyndon wanted something, Lyndon was going to get it. And once again, as we said earlier, Lyndon Johnson was the youngest director of any chapter of the NYA in the entire country. Once again, because of his single-minded drive and his lust for power, he did at a younger age what nobody else was able to do. Lyndon was the director of the Texas chapter of the NYA for two years, and in those two years, he did what he always did. He dedicated every part of his being, all of his energy, all of his 
brains, education, and physical attributes to being the best director that he could be. Because if he was the best director he could be, he would be noticed by powerful people, thereby giving him the relationships he needed to become more powerful himself. If it seems like I'm repeating that over and over again, it's because it happened over and over again in Lyndon's life. It seems like from the time that he came to Washington as the legislative assistant to the time he left as the disgraced president in 1968, everything he did was always geared towards either gaining relationships so that he could gain power or consolidating the power that he already had. Lyndon's life from the time he was in his 20s until he died can be summed up in one word, power. In 1937, there was once again the opportunity for Lyndon to move up in the world of politics when a congressman from the 10th district of Texas passed away before his term was up. That meant that there had to be a special election to fill the vacant seat, and Lyndon decided that he was going to run for that seat. And it was unexpected but he actually was able to win and he was elected in 1937 to the House of Representatives. He was a staunch supporter of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal legislation and he actually was able to become somewhat of an acquaintance with the president at this time. And because he was such a smooth talker and political manipulator, he was able to get the president's help in getting onto some important committees in the House of Representatives. Lyndon Johnson actually learned pretty quickly that if he wanted to become even more powerful and to have a real effect on the politics of American life, that he needed to get out of the House of Representatives and get into the Senate. The Senate is where he believed the real action was. And he tried to run for the Senate in 1941, but he was defeated. And he claimed he was defeated by fraud. And that has an interesting effect on how things play out over the next 10 years, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But he lost. He retained his seat in the House of Representatives in 1941. And then the United States entered World War II in 1941. And Lyndon Johnson became the first active member of Congress to also serve on active duty in World War II as a lieutenant commander in the Navy. And there's a story that comes up during his time, his very brief time on active duty that I think is important to share because it really gives an insight into the mind of Lyndon Johnson and how it seems that he thought everything through in terms of what the benefit would be for him and how it could further his political career, even combat in World War II. So this story is about how a bathroom break saved the life of Lyndon Johnson and how he won a medal because he had to pee. Lyndon Johnson, because he was an active member of Congress, was of course kept away from the more dangerous aspects of war. He was considered active duty, but he was not really a combatant, so to speak. He spent most of his time in the Pacific touring bases, and he really wanted to get into combat. He was badgering people to allow him into combat, even if it was just as an observer. And so finally, on June 9, 1942, Johnson was allowed to go along on a B-26 bomber called the Wabash Cannonball, but he had to use the restroom right before they were supposed to take off. And by the time he got back from the restroom, he had discovered that another observer had taken his seat, and so he was forced to jump on another B-26 called the Heckling Hare. 
This was probably the most important and significant bathroom break that Lyndon Johnson ever took in his entire life, because the Wabash Cannonball and the Heckling Hare were heading to a raid on New Guinea, but before they could get there, the Wabash Cannonball was hit and started on fire. And as one of just a countless amount of tragedies that occurred in World War II, the Wabash Cannonball crashed and killed everybody on board, including the observer that would have been Lyndon Johnson had he not gone to the bathroom. Now the heckling hare, which Lyndon was actually on, had mechanical issues, so they had to jettison their bombs and return to base, but before they could get back to base, they were badly shot up by Japanese fighters. And Johnson wanted to help, but mainly he was just watching through the plexiglass nose of the bomber. And despite the fact that he basically spent most of his time watching, when the heckling hare finally made it back to Australia, Douglas MacArthur awarded LBJ with a silver star. And it was a very controversial decision. It still is a controversial decision because not a single other member of the heckling hare was awarded any type of commendation. So Lyndon Johnson, as an observer, was awarded a silver star, and the whole thing smacked of political nepotism and favoritism and the fact that it seemed almost like a political stunt that Douglas MacArthur was giving this active member of Congress a commendation for really not doing anything. But that's what happened. And LBJ claims that he was embarrassed and says he did not deserve the medal, and he actually wrote a letter that claimed he should not have got it. But he never sent the letter because an advisor told him that he needed to keep it because he was destined to be a powerful man and it would be helpful to him in his political career. Now, I usually try to find the best in people. I know that might surprise some of you. But I really want to believe that LBJ was truly embarrassed and that he kept the medal because it was something that made him proud, even if he was not sure he deserved it. You know, he was proud of the service that he had conducted for his country. He did join up. He was an active duty, and that should be commended. But part of me just cannot help but shake the feeling that Lyndon Johnson was awarded this medal erroneously, and he did not deserve it, and he kept it so that he could use it as a political tool to gain higher office. Don't know if that's true. Seems like it probably is, considering Lyndon Johnson is a political machine. But in the end, I guess we'll never know. But what I do know is that he kept the medal, and he actually wore the commendation ribbon on the lapel of his suits for the rest of his life. Lyndon Johnson's active duty lasted six months during World War II. But to give him the benefit of the doubt, it was not his decision to leave active duty to return back to Congress. FDR had actually ordered all members of Congress back to legislative duties. So he was required by his presidential order to head back to Congress, and that's what he did, and that's where he spent the rest of World War II. From 1945 until 1948, Lyndon Johnson continued to serve in the post-war House of Representatives, but he was starting to get restless. As I said earlier, he learned quickly that the real power was in the Senate. He had been unsuccessful in 1941, but he decided once again in 1948 to try to get one of the two Texas Senate seats. Texas was basically a one-party state in 1948. If you won the Senate Democratic primary race, 
you were basically elected to the Senate. A lot of times they would actually run unopposed. There was no Republicans to even challenge them. So in 1948, there was a multitude of Democrats going for the primary, and not a single one of them was able to get the required majority of votes to win the primary. Lyndon Johnson was number two. Coke Stevenson, who incidentally I think has the coolest name. I don't know why, but I love that name. Such a Texas down-home name, so to speak. Coke Stevenson. I'd vote for that guy. Anyway, he was the person with the most votes, but not enough. So there was a runoff, a special election for the Democratic primary between Lyndon Baines Johnson and Coke Stevenson. And Lyndon was not favored to win. Everybody assumed that it was going to be Stevenson. He was a beloved former governor of Texas, and he was extraordinarily popular. Lyndon, however, was an excellent campaigner. He knew how to give speeches. He knew how to speak to the heart of the people that were voting for him. And he adopted practices that we would consider normal nowadays. But at the time in 1948 were pretty revolutionary. We are used to candidates nowadays with the ease of travel and TV giving multiple speeches a day and being in multiple different states even on a single day to rally the troops, so to speak, and to rally the votes. But Lyndon in 1948 was on the cutting edge when he rented a helicopter and he traveled to multiple spots in Texas within a day and gave speeches. And Coke Stevenson was kind of riding on his laurels. He was very popular and he did not feel as much the need to campaign. And so it came down to an incredibly close election and Lyndon actually won. But that's where things start getting really interesting because of how he won. Well, let's just say there was some funny business going on that's never been proved, but he stole the election. Okay, so here is the situation. The runoff election was held, and it appeared that Lyndon had lost. Now, six days after the runoff, there was a ballot box. It has become infamously known as Ballot Box 13. And it suddenly appeared. The officials, quote-unquote, found it. And there were 202 votes in that ballot box. And wouldn't you know, 200 of those 202 votes were for Lyndon Johnson. When counted, it gave him a margin of victory of 87 votes. 87 votes out of 988,000 votes cast in the Texas primary for the senator from the great state of Texas. If you're doing the math, which I did, that gave Lyndon Johnson a 0.00881% margin of victory. Whew, what a comeback. Let's dive into this a little bit. It was really suspicious right from the get-go. First off, it was six days after the election was held. Suddenly, this box shows up out of nowhere. Now, 200 of the 202 votes are for Johnson. Off the bat, that is wildly suspicious. But not only that... They were all in the same handwriting as best as they could tell at the time. 202 votes, same handwriting. Seems doubtful that they were legit. They also had different color ink. There was evidence that they were not all cast at the same spot. And most importantly, box 13 with the votes for Johnson was found in Alice, Texas. Now, why is Alice, Texas important? Well... 
That's because Alice, Texas is in the heartland of an area controlled by the political boss George Parr. George Parr was a powerful man in the scene of Texas politics, and he used illegal donations and bribery, and he would turn out a large number of voters, both legal and illegal, to make sure that whoever he wanted to get elected got elected. Seems like a non sequitur, but what needs to also be pointed out is that in 1946, Lyndon Johnson was instrumental in getting George Parr a presidential pardon. Now, there's no evidence. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. There's plenty of circumstantial evidence, but there's no proof that Lyndon Johnson cut a deal with George Parr based on what he had done for him in the past to make sure that Lyndon got elected to the Senate. But is anybody really going to believe that is the case? I mean, come on. Lyndon was obsessed with gaining power. He found out that he was going to lose the election by an incredibly small amount of votes. And whoa, look at that. George Parr found 200 votes for Lyndon and he wins. That just doesn't happen. There has to be some funny business going on. Like I said, it's never been proved. Coke Stevenson was quite upset. He started some lawsuits. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, but because there was no proof, the Supreme Court basically just said, well, there's nothing we can do about it. And Johnson was awarded the election. Now, postscript to the story, Coke Stevenson, not such a great guy either in this case. There was definite evidence of fraud on both sides of the election. But regardless, Lyndon won. He won in a way that was pretty obviously ethically dicey, I think would be a good way to put it at this point. And people noticed. He actually got the nickname Landslide Lyndon, kind of a uh, tongue-in-cheek nickname. And that stuck with him for quite some time. And he did not like it. And whether it was because it was a lie or because it was super accurate, we'll never know, I guess. But that is how Lyndon Johnson was elected to the United States Senate. Lyndon Johnson's career in the United States Senate may go down in history as the most powerful Senate career of all time. I don't know if anybody's ever done a ranking of those, but Lyndon Johnson was at home in the Senate. In fact, he basically became the Senate, but we'll get to that in a little bit. He loved the Senate. It was what he was born to do. But when he first joined in 1948, the Senate was run on a seniority system, and he was a freshman senator, very junior, did not have any seniority, and therefore was kind of a backbencher, not much power and not much influence. Now, the normal process would be to wait until you have more seniority and gain power slowly as you move along in your career. But I'm sure we've all figured out by now that that was not going to fly with Lyndon Johnson. He needed the power, and he needed it now. And he had a plan to get it, and his plan was to woo the senior members of the Senate. I really don't know any other way to say it. Obviously, it was not a romantic relationship, but he spent time courting the senior senators. He became friends with them. He worked with them on important legislation. He voted with them. He gave them what they wanted, and he showed them that he was willing to do the work. And because he became friends with these senators and he became kind of a protege of some of the more important members of the Senate, 
he was able to gain access to the important committees. And as we discussed with the House of Representatives, committees is the way that you really gain the power in one of the legislative bodies. He was appointed to these committees that he wanted. And in 1951, he was named the Democratic, the minority whip. So a short pause here to talk about the whip, the Senate whip. I've always heard of them, and I've always heard about the minority and the majority leaders within the Senate, but I was always a little confused of what the whip did or who it was. So I thought I'd do some digging into it. I finally have an excuse to dig into that. It's a wild night for me learning about senatorial procedure, but it was fun. I thought I'd pass some of the stuff on that I learned. So, of course, most people are aware that the Senate, there's the two parties, Democrats and Republican, of course, and whichever party is in control of the Senate by having the majority of the senators at the time has the majority leader. He is the man or woman in charge of the party that has the majority. Then, of course, there's the minority, same situation, except they don't have control of the Senate. And then each party has a whip. And a whip can be thought of as like a party enforcer. They are the person who is responsible for ensuring discipline within the party. And what that basically means is making sure that individual members of your party vote in the way that the leadership has decided they should vote. And it's a way to whip votes. That's how they got their name. They whip votes for certain legislation and they ensure that the votes go their party's way, at least as much as they're able to. So 1951 rolls around and Lyndon Johnson is elected by his fellow senators to be the Democratic Party whip. And at the time, the Democrats were in the minority. So he is the assistant to the minority leader and he is responsible for whipping votes within the Democratic Party. And he was a great choice for this role because he had a mental dossier on all of his colleagues, it seemed like. He was amazing at cultivating relationships and remembering things with it seems like almost photographic memory so that he knew how to get people to vote the way he wanted whether he needed to bribe them with something they wanted for their constituents whether he needed to browbeat them and basically force them by his willpower and his power of personality to vote the way he wanted or threaten them with taking away something from them whether it was a legislation they wanted to pass he would make sure that it didn't get passed whatever it took he made sure that people voted the way he wanted and he did this by knowing the people that he worked with knowing what they wanted knowing what they needed and knowing how to approach them whether it was either cajoling threats bribery whatever it took and he got things done as the whip he was very impressive and he didn't actually stay the whip very long because in 1953, he got promoted to Senate Minority Leader. So he went from assistant to the minority leader to minority leader himself. And he was the most junior senator ever elected to that position. Once again, like we've seen in the past, he was always either the youngest or the most junior member elected to some position. And he did it again in 1953 as the minority leader. And not only that, but in 1954, during the elections, the Democrats actually won back control of the Senate. So Lyndon Johnson immediately became the majority leader. He was in charge of the Senate at that point, and he thrived on this situation. It was the next step in his ultimate quest for power. And other than the president, he was probably the most 
powerful person in politics at that time, and he took advantage of it. First off, he basically got rid of the seniority system in the Senate. He started using his base of power to give people what they wanted. And by doing that, he consolidated his own position because he became the person that people needed to work with if they wanted to advance their career in the Senate. And it didn't matter if they had the seniority or not. So he had almost a cult-like following of junior members of the Senate that were willing to do basically whatever he wanted. And it led to an interesting turn of events for the Senate. Like I said earlier, he became the Senate. And he did this because he always needed to be in control, as we've discussed. He never wanted to be surprised by legislation. So he was always working behind the scenes to make sure that when legislation came to the floor, he had an exact number of people that he knew was going to vote for it. He knew exactly who was going to vote against it. And he knew who was in the column of maybe. And then he would focus on making sure to sway the people he wanted to his side and make sure that either legislation passed or didn't. But he did this all behind the scenes. And he somewhat eliminated debate from the floor of the Senate because there was no need for it. He did all of the work, closed-door meetings in the hallways of the Senate. And when the legislation came to actually be voted on on the floor of the Senate, Lyndon Johnson already knew what was going to happen the majority of the time. He was the Senate. He is possibly one of the most effective Senate leaders of all time. And I say effective, not condoning or condemning any of the legislation that was passed. That's not the point of this rhetoric, so to speak. What I mean by effective is that he had a party platform and he got legislation passed that was conducive to his platform. His success rate was very impressive. And that continued for quite some time. Even when he had a near fatal heart attack in 1955, it didn't stop him from working. He still controlled the Senate through the people that he put into positions of power and through his sheer willpower from his hospital bed. He was still in control. Never once did he lose his grip on the Senate. But it still was not enough. So as 1960 was coming up, he started to set his eyes on the ultimate prize of the Oval Office. Now, if you know a little bit about American history, you might be scratching your head right now and thinking, but Lyndon Johnson did not become president in 1960. And you'd be correct. John F. Kennedy won the election of 1960. He beat out Johnson in the Democratic primary. And then in the general election, he won against Richard Nixon and became the 35th president of the United States. And he had asked Lyndon to be his running mate, the vice presidency. And Lyndon accepted, which is a little bit interesting because in some ways it makes sense. The vice presidency is one step away from the presidency. If the president dies, you're automatically going to be sworn in as president. But even if the president lives out his term, you are the next logical person to take up the candidacy for your party if you're the vice presidency. It just makes sense. So in that respect it makes sense that Lyndon accepted the offer. But in other ways, it does not make sense. There's a couple different ways. One of them is Lyndon talked a lot in his life about the difference between thinkers and doers. Lyndon considered himself a doer, a man of action, someone who got stuff done. 
And he contrasted this to thinkers, or who he called Harvards, who were people who were intellectual and thought a lot, but then never actually put those thoughts into action. And those thinkers or those Harvards never really got anything done in politics. And John F. Kennedy, as well as his brother Bobby, were the epitome of who Lyndon would call Harvards. They were East Coast elites, and they kind of were born with the silver spoon in their mouth, so to speak. Lyndon Johnson claims to have had a good relationship with JFK. He claims that there was mutual respect and that they worked well together while they were president and vice president. And maybe that's true. I, I don't see much evidence against it. But what I do know is that Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson hated each other, absolutely despised each other. Lyndon saw Bobby as the epitome of a thinker who got nothing done and was a classic Harvard, worthless in the realm of politics. And Bobby saw Lyndon Johnson as a crass and crude Texas hick. And there may be a little bit of truth to both of those things, but one way or the other, it's somewhat weird that Lyndon Johnson was the vice president to a man whose closest advisor was his sworn enemy, basically. But regardless, Lyndon took over as vice president. But the other reason that it's a little bit odd that Lyndon was willing to accept the vice presidency is because he lost all of his power. People might not realize, but the vice presidency is a fairly ceremonial position. There is not much power in real world terms to the vice presidency. It is a title without much underneath it. And Lyndon, in his own words, detested being the vice president. He absolutely hated it. He felt like he was worthless. There was nothing for him to do. And more and more, he felt like he was getting shut out by the Kennedys, and he blamed Bobby. But he was not involved in legislation. He was not involved in foreign policy. He was not involved in any of the major decisions that were being made by the administration. And it tore him apart. He went from being the most powerful man in the Senate to being a figurehead who came so close to the presidency but didn't quite get there. And then 1963 happened. Kennedy was shot and killed in Texas, which was not easy for Lyndon since it was his home state. But right there on Air Force One in the tarmac in Dallas at Love Field, Lyndon Johnson took the oath of office, and he became the 36th president of the United States. And now it was his time to shine as the most powerful man in the free world. He had finally gotten everything that he wanted. He had more power than any person on the planet. Now, when Lyndon became president because of the tragic assassination of Kennedy, the country, which was already grieving, had a lot of sympathy for Johnson. And he was politically astute enough to know that that sympathy could be used to pass legislation that he wanted to get done. And so he right away started working on a civil rights bill. It was something that Kennedy had started, and Johnson was determined to get the law passed and put into practice. And he thought it would be the best way to honor Kennedy to get it passed because it was something Kennedy felt strongly about near the end of his life. It was not going to be easy to get a civil rights bill passed, however, at this time because the Southern Democrats were vehemently opposed to any type of civil rights bill. But Johnson had done this before. In 1957, when he was the majority leader in the Senate, he had pushed a bill through and gotten passed a civil rights bill 
despite the same opposition from the Southern Democrats. And so he was determined to get it done. And he did. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. And what it did was prohibit discrimination in public places. So you could not have segregation in places such as theaters or restaurants. And it provided integration of public schools as well as made employment discrimination illegal. And it was a big step in the right direction for civil rights. Whether or not it got implemented is somewhat of a gray area, but the fact is that Lyndon got the law on the books. And he felt strongly about civil rights. He was very persuasive, and he very strongly believed that it was the right thing to do. And he had to be very persuasive in order to get people to vote the way he wanted on the civil rights bill. That's the only way it could have gotten passed. But a story comes from George Wallace that shows just how persuasive he could be. Now, for those of you that don't know, George Wallace was the four-time governor of Alabama, and he has the distinction of being perceived as an incredibly racist guy. He, he probably was. He also was someone who pandered to his base, and the base in Alabama in the 60s was white, and they did not care to be integrated, and they preferred segregation. They didn't really care about civil rights, let's put it that way. So George Wallace was very against any type of civil rights reform. He wanted the schools to be segregated. He was very against integration so that black and white students would go into the same schools. And he is famous for blocking the school door in Alabama to prevent a black student from entering the school until he was removed by the National Guard. But despite all of that, despite the racist leanings of George Wallace, he had a meeting to discuss civil rights with Lyndon Johnson and after the meeting was done, he said, quote, if I hadn't left when I did, he'd have had me coming out for civil rights. That's how persuasive Johnson was. He had what was at the time one of the most racist people in his office. And by the time he was done, even George Wallace was concerned that he would be convinced to support civil rights. And so the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was the first major achievement of the Johnson administration. And also in 1964, was the presidential election. Now, Johnson could run in his own right, of course, now that he was the incumbent, and he was up against Barry Goldwater, the Republican challenger, and it wasn't even close. Lyndon Johnson demolished Barry Goldwater. He won 44 states, plus Washington, D.C., and Goldwater only won six. Lyndon got more of the popular vote than any president since 1820 in one 486 electoral votes to 52. It was an absolute landslide. Landslide Lyndon for real this time. And Lyndon used this massive popularity to start his domestic agenda. And he had a plan for what he called the Great Society, which was a set of domestic programs and legislation that was seen as reform. Lyndon Johnson wanted his Great Society to be the new version of FDR's New Deal, except he wanted it to be bigger, better, and he wanted to basically be the iconic president who saved the United States from poverty and crime and inequality, and he wanted to improve the environment. It was an incredibly ambitious plan. It maybe was too ambitious. There was just too much going on, which we'll get into more in depth, but I believe that the Great Society was truly the beginning of the downfall of Lyndon Johnson. So even right away in 1964 and 1965, 
the downfall of Johnson was coming, but you just couldn't see it yet. In order to capture the scope of the Great Society, I want to read a passage from the biography of Lyndon Johnson that I read for this podcast. It's called Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream by Doris Kearns Goodwin. She was an aide to Lyndon in the last year of his presidency and then spent time with him after his presidency, gathering notes and recollections and thoughts from Lyndon. And then she wrote this biography in 1976. And bear with me here because it's a bit of a quote, but I wanted to read it specifically just to show how ambitious the Great Society was. So this was Lyndon's dream for the Great Society, and I quote, The Great Society would offer something to almost everyone, Medicare for the old, educational assistance for the young, tax rebates for business, a higher minimum wage for labor, subsidies for farmers, vocational training for the unskilled, food for the hungry, housing for the homeless, poverty grants for the poor, clean highways for commuters, legal protection for the blacks, improved schooling for the Indians, rehabilitation for the lame, higher benefits for the unemployed, reduced quotas for the immigrants, auto safety for drivers, pensions for the retired, fair labeling for consumers, conservation for the hikers and the campers, and more and more and more. None of his fellow citizens' desires were, Johnson thought, wholly beyond his ability to satisfy. End quote. Wow. That is a lot. I, there's, there's no way that anybody can think this is going to happen except for Lyndon Johnson. He was fully optimistic that he could do this. I don't know how. Maybe he was already starting to get a little delusional. I feel like later on in his presidency, he becomes paranoid and delusional. Or maybe I just don't understand how government works. You know, I'm not a politician, but he truly believed that he could do this. And he set about legislation to get it done. And when I say legislation, I'm talking a staggering amount of bills passed in the two-year period from 1965 to 67. They passed through the Congress from the administration 200-some bills in a two-year period. That is an insane amount of legislation to be passed by Congress on the recommendation of a presidential administration. In fact, some people think that this particular Congress, which I believe was the 89th Congress, don't quote me on that, but I think it was the 89th Congress. Some political historians say that this was the most, quote, successful Congress of all time if success is just sheer number of bills passed. It's mind-blowing to me. And that's part of the reason the Great Society ultimately ended in failure is because success was viewed as getting a bill passed. But there was not necessarily as much thought put into how the bill would be implemented. So they could pass a bill, say, that would provide better education for Native Americans. But then there was nothing behind it. They were not giving thought to how they were going to get better education, how it was going to be paid for, what the program would be. They were more worried about passing the bill, and they would worry about actually making the programs work later. And that's not a way to run a reform program. But that's the way the administration had chosen to do it. But in the end, it failed because it came down to money. The Great Society obviously cost a great deal of money. And it doesn't help that at the same time, the United States was getting more and more involved in the Vietnam War. Lyndon Johnson needed money for two huge expenditures. 
And he was absolutely insistent that the United States being the richest country in the world could pay for, he called it, we could pay for guns and butter. We could pay for the war. We could also pay for the great society. And he was absolutely adamant that he was not going to introduce new or higher taxes to pay for Vietnam and the great society. But the rising costs of both were starting to cause inflation. And that's when things started to truly unravel for Lyndon Johnson. Now, what happened that caused such economic unrest, and full disclosure here, I have a degree in social studies, and within social studies, by far my worst subject was economics. I did try to get an understanding of what was happening with inflation and what that means, but it's very basic. So if you need more help with economics beyond what I say in this podcast, I don't, maybe try Ben Shapiro or read a economics book. But anyway, as I understand it, what basically started to happen is during this time, prices for goods started to rise. And because prices for what people needed to buy were going up, workers sought higher wages. They needed a better wage for the new standard of living. And because the manufacturers or the people in charge had to pay their workers higher wages, they needed to increase their production costs, which caused prices to rise again, and on and on and on. And this chain reaction leads to the spiral known as inflation. Now, inflation is basically the decline of the purchasing power of a currency. So for the United States, of course, it's the dollar. So a good example to think about in, in the example that I read is a movie ticket. Now, I know a lot of us don't go to movies, but the movie tickets in 1980 were about, on average, $2.90. Currently, according to this article, the average for a movie ticket is about $9.16. So if you had a $10 bill in 1980, you could buy three tickets and get change back. But now, you would only be able to purchase one ticket and get change back. That is inflation. Your $10 bill has less purchasing power than it did in 1980. And because this was occurring during the Great Society, and because Johnson did not recommend a tax increase or any other economic measures, inflation, it became runaway. It just exploded. And the Great Society was a sacrificial lamb to help the bleeding in the economy, so to speak. And it was eventually torn apart by the Nixon and Ford administration after Lyndon was done with his presidency. The economy just could not support the great society, and it was eventually dismantled. And it was really difficult for Lyndon Johnson. The great society was his baby, and he failed and got to watch it get dismantled. But the pain of the great society failure was nothing compared to Lyndon Johnson in the Vietnam War. Lyndon Johnson was the president who had sent troops into combat in Vietnam for the first time, but like we said last episode, he was not the president who sent troops to Vietnam in general for the first time. That had been happening for quite some time. But he really started ramping up the presence, and then, yes, he was the president who authorized combat. And he actually did this without congressional approval. In fact, Congress barely even was aware that we had troops in combat. And this was a constitutional gray area, so to speak. So as 
most people know the Constitution gives only Congress the ability to wage war, to declare war on a different country. Now, Congress was never intended by the framers to be a full-time job. It was intended to be a part-time position where for a good majority of the year, at least at least half the year, congressmen and senators would be at home working on well, their farms at the time it was written, but working another job, and then they would be part-time congressmen. And especially when the Constitution was written, this was back in the days when horse travel was the fastest way to get around. And so if Congress was not in session, the Constitution gave the executive, the president, the ability to act because there would be too long of a time to gather Congress. So they needed to give the president emergency powers to act in defense of the country. And Johnson and other presidents have used this to their advantage many times by sending troops into combat using this loophole, so to speak. And Johnson actually never did get the declaration of war. We call it the Vietnam War. It was never declared by Congress. It was always just accepted by Congress. They went along with it because they didn't really have any choice. And it was during Vietnam that it seems like, to me at least, Johnson started slipping into the realm of paranoia and delusion. And it exhibited itself in a couple ways. For one thing, the combat casualties and the amount of enemy that was killed was reported to Johnson, and they were often egregiously false numbers. But Johnson never questioned them, even though it was obviously not correct. He did not want to hear anything that did not fit with the agenda that he had for Vietnam. It was kind of delusional. He, he made himself believe the numbers that he was getting so that he could report to the American people that we were easily winning the war. But also in terms of the paranoia, Johnson had absolute control of the Vietnam War. He would often boast to people that his troops couldn't even hit an outhouse with a bomb without his approval. And the reason that he kept such stringent control over the war is because he claimed that the war in Vietnam was preventing World War III. And he was always super paranoid about crossing some imaginary line that would provoke either China or Russia to start a war that would eventually engulf the globe. There's no evidence that China or Russia placed any great importance on Vietnam. Yet for some reason, in his mind, Johnson was sure that he was always right on the edge. Like if they bombed someplace across some imaginary line on the map, then suddenly Russia was going to declare war. Or if they sent troops into a certain area of Vietnam, then China was going to declare war and we'd have World War III. Part of it, I feel like, was paranoia. Part of it was maybe just he needed to satisfy his massive ego by claiming that he was the preventer of World War III. Or maybe he just needed something in his mind to justify what we were doing in Vietnam so that he could go to the American people with a clear conscience when he needed more troops or when he reported a victory in Vietnam, so to speak. I'm not really sure. But what I do know is that as years went on, especially into 1968, American opposition to the war was increasing more and more and more. 
And as opposition increased, Johnson's approval rating declined and declined and declined and declined. And this is when we start getting into the true year of tumult, 1968. I know I've spent over an hour talking about the life of Lyndon Johnson, even though this was a series on 1968. Oops. But it's interesting, and it does play into the year of tumult, as I've been calling it. Because at this point, people were starting to get completely fed up. There were race riots in major cities that caused millions of dollars of damage, as well as deaths. There were people that were killed in these riots. And more and more Americans started to believe that the Johnson administration was lying to them about Vietnam and the chance for peace. They had zero trust in their elected officials. And I know people say that they don't care about politics and they don't care about who's in charge necessarily, but it does have a real effect on life. If there's unrest and there is political divisions that in turn leads to violence, that's politics having a direct effect on real life. And that's what started happening. There were protests. 1968, as we talked about last week, last episode, was the Tet Offensive. And that's when everything came unraveled. Protests in major cities about the war. If Johnson was out in public, you would often hear chants like, Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids have you killed today? Which I imagine cannot be fun to hear. As it made me like sad to hear that, even if he deserved it, which I don't think anybody necessarily does. But those were the types of things that were happening. And then not only that, but the politics was becoming more and more divisive. And that just led to 1968 being completely, it is just totally upheaved, upheaval everywhere you looked. If you were watching the political landscape you never knew what was going to happen from day to day. And that can be a scary prospect in a country that's used to stability and riches and prosperity because those different things can play into everyday life. It can affect your job. It can affect how the economy performs, the stock market, and it can affect how foreign nations view us, opening you up to dangerous things. But the unpopularity of Johnson and the unrest from the chaos in 1968, started to cause politicians to think that maybe they could do a better job. And in 1968, Eugene McCarthy, a Democrat, made the basically unheard of decision to actually try to win the Democratic nomination away from the incumbent president. That never happens. The incumbent is always the nomination, the nominee for the presidency. But Eugene McCarthy had decided that he was going to try to take Johnson down. The craziest thing about this whole nomination process and a testament to not only the unpopularity of Lyndon Johnson, but also just what a weird year 1968 was, is that in the first primary for the Democratic nomination in New Hampshire, Eugene McCarthy did ridiculously well. He won like 41% of the vote and Johnson only won, I think, 48%. As the incumbent president, only winning a primary by seven percentage points is a very, very bad prospect for your nomination or your general election hopes and chances. And to make it even worse, after McCarthy did so well, Bobby Kennedy decided, hey, maybe I got a chance. So he decided to run for the Democratic nomination. And things just spiraled out of control. The political divisions were 
there was so much vitriol and hatred, really. And it wasn't just the politicians. Each politician had his own subset of the population. And they were vehemently opposed to each other. And it caused unrest throughout the entire country. Unrest. That's just the word that keeps popping into my head about 1968. Tumult, chaos, unrest. Those are the words that seem to describe 1968. And by March of that year, Lyndon Johnson was exhausted. He was paranoid. And he was gripped by anxiety and uncertainty and a sense of failure, both of the Great Society and Vietnam. And so on March 31, 1968, Lyndon Johnson decided to give a speech. And the speech was mostly about the war in Vietnam. But he had his speechwriters write an end to the speech. And he was actually not even sure when he began the televised speech if he was going to read the end of the speech or if he was just going to end after talking about Vietnam. But when he got to the end on live TV, he made an announcement that shocked the country. I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. This was truly a shocking announcement. People did not see this coming. They were happy that it happened because he was very unpopular. But this was a man who for the last 37 years had devoted his life to politics and power and the gaining and consolidating of more power. And he was finally in the most powerful position arguably in the world. He was the head of one of the two superpowers in the world. And he was deciding to give it up. People had trouble wrapping their heads around it. It was completely unexpected. It worked in Johnson's favor, though, to be honest, because overnight his popularity skyrocketed relative to where it had started. I think when he gave the speech, it was he was at like a 57% disapproval rating or even worse. And by the next morning, he was up to a 57 approval, which is a huge turnaround. People saw him making a personal and political sacrifice to try and heal the nation. But unfortunately, it was a charade. It wasn't a charade on Johnson's part. I guess I, it's a facade. I'm not sure the word I'm looking for. But healing did not happen. In fact, the political unrest in the year of tumult, 1968, was just kicking into gear, and it really drove home the the unrest and the chaos really was brought to light even more so after the speech that Johnson gave and during the Democratic Convention to name a nominee. The 1968 Democratic Convention took place in Chicago from August 25 to August 29, and it was a pretty horrendous chapter in political as well as modern American history. There was two parts to it. There was what was actually happen happening on the convention floor. And then there was what was happening on the streets outside in Chicago. And what was happening at the convention 
was a complete fracturing of the Democratic Party. It was a party that was in a complete state of chaos. And there was a lot of reasons behind this. Like I said earlier, there were three people that were involved in running for the nomination. And actually, at this point, one of them was not Bobby Kennedy. We're going to get into this in a later episode, but Kennedy had actually been assassinated. So the three people vying for the Democratic convention, the Democratic nomination, excuse me, were George McGovern, Eugene McCarthy, and then Hubert Humphrey, who was Johnson's vice president and the man that Johnson most wanted to get the nomination. And they did not like each other. Hated might be the word you would use. And the delegates that supported each hated the delegates that supported the others. It was a complete and utter mess. And the Democratic Party was completely falling apart. They did not have a platform. They did not have a plan going forward. And they weren't even close to having a nominee that they could consolidate behind and try to gain the presidency. It was a nightmare scenario. And it seems like there should have been actual physical violence. I'm I'm pretty sure if you gave them the chance, the nominees would have been down with settling the nomination with a boxing match just so they could beat the snot out of their opponents. They really hated them that much. And what it came down to was George McGovern and Eugene McCarthy split delegates that were anti-war, and that left Hubert Humphrey with enough delegates to clinch the nomination. He was the Democratic nominee at the end of all this craziness. And that was maybe the worst possible situation. Because Hubert Humphrey was basically a continuation of Johnson. He had the same policies. He was going to continue the war. And people saw Johnson leaving the race as not much of a factor anymore because they figured they were just going to get many Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey. So it led to extraordinary anger. And that anger was most apparent out on the streets of Chicago. Protesters had been planning on going to Chicago during the Democratic Convention to protest the Vietnam War, but also the political status quo. And most likely they would have gone no matter if Johnson had stayed in the race or if they had to select a new nominee, which is the case. But regardless, there was more anger and more upheaval because Johnson had left the race than there would have been if he had stayed and became the, if they'd gone through the formality of just nominating Johnson. But regardless, these young people, it was mostly college kids, went to Chicago. And the day before the convention, so August 25, the mayor of Chicago, Richard Daly, had ordered the police to clear out protesters from Lincoln Park. They did not have a permit to be there. And the mayor had for a time allowed them to be there. But now that the convention was about to start, it was time to move them out. And so at 11 p.m. on August 25, police in riot gear started to try to get the protesters out of the park. And they used tear gas. And so there were blind and choking protesters running around Lincoln Park trying to get away. And the police moved in and started beating protesters. And beating them with clubs, basically the billy clubs that police carry. And they did not stop generally when someone went down. I'm all for the police. I support them 100%. But in this case, it seemed like they actually were using some pretty excessive force. And people that 
witnessed it, called it unrestrained bloodshed and chaos. And it wasn't just this particular moment. This was one of multiple protests going on. And the protests lasted until the convention ended. And there were multiple incidences like this with police and protesters clashing in these bloody and violent beatdowns, basically. And most of this was broadcast to the American people so that they could watch, horrified, on TV as other Americans and younger Americans, they were like college kids a lot of times, were just getting beaten bloody. But they were also watching Democratic Party delegates, the delegates that were on the losing side, the anti-war delegates, many of them joined the protesters. So if you were a supporter of the Democratic Party, not only are you watching protesters get beat down outside of the Democratic Convention, you're also watching delegates who did not get their way join in on the protest. There was absolutely no unity. It seemed to these people watching on TV that the entire country was just falling apart. The chaos of 1968 was in full effect. And we're going to get more into that later on. But for now, that pretty much ties up the end of episode two. And it ended with beatdowns, bloody battles between police and protesters, and Lyndon Johnson as a despised and defeated man going back to his ranch in Texas. So what is the legacy of Lyndon Johnson? We've talked about his life. We've talked about how 1968 was affected by him and how 1968 affected him. But what is his legacy? How did he end up? Well, Lyndon, unfortunately for him, has become somewhat of the face of the tumult of the 1960s, especially 1968. He is seen as the man who was the face of the divisions in the United States, the racial divisions, the hawk versus dove, anti-war versus pro-war, conservative versus liberal. And it didn't matter which side of the spectrum you're on, you probably had an unfavorable view of Lyndon Johnson at this point in time. If you were on the right, you saw him as someone who tried to do too much. He overloaded the system with big government programs and he trampled on individual liberties. And if you were on the left, you saw him as a corrupt liar who had dishonestly gotten America involved in a quagmire of death called Vietnam. And many of the protests, like I said, at 1968 convention probably would have happened regardless of what speech Lyndon gave, whether he ended his speech after just talking about Vietnam or whether he actually did withdraw from the nomination. But he set the stage with his, with his withdrawal for more chaos and more anger when another candidate was nominated who would continue his policies. Many people saw Johnson as a quote-unquote kingmaker, that he influenced the decisions of the delegates to make sure that his vice president, Humphrey, got the nomination. And Johnson's presidency provided a boiling over point for multiple tensions in the United States. Racial tensions and anti-war tensions and economic tensions. Just a lot of different things that were coming to a head in 1968. They finally boiled over and they boiled over in a violent and sometimes deadly way. And after his presidency, 
Johnson went back to his ranch in Texas. And it was interesting doing the research because it seems like he actually could never quite understand the anger that was directed his way. In his mind, everything he did was to help America and the American people, whether he was fighting the war on poverty or fighting to prevent World War III. And he was deeply wounded by the amount of hate that he received. After a lifetime of public service, he was despised. And it seemed like all of his previous achievements were swept under the rug because of what happened in the years from 1964 to 1968, and especially in 1968 with all the chaos. And he especially was wounded by the hate he got from the younger generation. He felt that they just didn't understand what he was trying to do. But in the end, he could not escape. He could not escape his critics. He was most probably upset by the effect that Nixon, who won the 1968 election for Republicans, President Nixon, the effect that Nixon had on the great society. LBJ compared the lack of support for the great society to a starving woman. And he said multiple times, when she dies, then I will die. And on January 20, 1973, Nixon was inaugurated for a second term, and later that day, he announced his plans for the, dismantle, the dismantling of the Great Society. And the very next day, Johnson was taking an afternoon nap when he suffered a massive heart attack. And he was able to get to the phone and tell the switchboard operators to tell his Secret Service men to come to his room. But by the time he arrived, he was unresponsive, and despite being transported to the hospital, he was dead at 64 years old. And when it comes down to Lyndon's life, I think there's one quote that sums up his life. And that's this, quote, When I first became president... I realized that if I only could take the next step and become dictator of the whole world, then I could really make things happen, end quote. And that's the true legacy of Lyndon Johnson. He was a man with a lust for power, and it led to a meteoric rise and a catastrophic downfall. Here was a man who thought that he could do it all and failed and became just one more victim of the year of tumult. <laughs>